it is extremely fitting that we sang that last song because we're going to be looking at Jesus and Peter walking on the water today. So if you've got your Bibles, please go to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. Do hope you are having a great summer. It's hard to believe it's July 1st and we are halfway done with the year. That is a crazy reality. Summer's upon us. But I do hope as you've come this morning, I said it last week and we'll say it again this week, I hope you have come expectant. Because every time we open God's word, it is what God is saying. There is never a time that God is not saying what is recorded in his word. And so if we were to just simply read his word today, we would be hearing from the Lord. So I hope you've come expectant. I hope you've come ready. I, I, I hope I have come ready to receive whatever the Lord would show us in his word today. So look down with me. Matthew 14, verse 22 says this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So this sets our setting for what's going to take place. It says immediately Jesus sent the disciples away. What has previously happened, as we looked at last week, is Jesus has just fed uh, 5,000, is what we call it, the feeding of the 5,000, but he's just fed ultimately a group of 30 to 40,000 people easily if we just take a low estimate. He has taken a, a meager supply of five loaves of bread and two fish. He has then blessed them and then he has multiplied them and given them to the disciples to feed the crowd. The crowd, the disciples, having grown up on a Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, this is not lost on them. They realize that Jesus has just done what Moses and Elijah only announced. Moses tells the Israelites in the wilderness, God's going to provide manna from heaven for you. But Moses doesn't make the provision. Only God provides. Elijah has a hundred prophets who need to eat. He tells a man, set your 20 loaves of bread on the table. God multiplies the bread and they eat to their fill. Elijah merely announces, Jesus hasn't announced this. Jesus has done it. And so as this, as this miracle, as this time of feeding comes to an end, the Gospel of John tells us that the crowds, they don't understand really who Jesus is, but they do, they do realize he is greater than, than Moses and Elisha. They say, he is, this is surely the prophet who is to come. And then it says that, that they came and they, they, they attempted to force Jesus, to take him away by force and to make him king. So to put yourself in the scenario, this group of 30 to 40,000 people has now been whipped up into a political frenzy. They are, they are instantly, they see the power of Christ and they say, this is surely the man we're going to make him. We're going to force him be king. We're going to commit an act of treason and form a coup and overthrow the Roman Empire, the most powerful army we've ever seen. Because they have this expectation that Jesus is going to be a political Messiah, a political deliverer. And it's in this moment that we pick up in verse 22, and it says, immediately, without any moment. So the disciples have just been gathering the bread. The crowd is whipped into a frenzy, and Jesus wastes no time. Disciples, you've got to go. In fact, when it says that he made the disciples get into the boat, that word made is an extremely strong word. This is a, there's no time for conversation, Peter. There's no time to talk about this, James and John. You go, and you go now. Get in the boat. Get out of here. Be gone. He forces, he urges, he compels them over, likely because he does not want his disciples, one of whom we know was a zealot, 
Peter, James, and John who had, you know, James and John want to call down fire upon people who don't believe. They're an excitable group. He does not want them influenced by the wrong belief the crowds are holding. So he sends them away to the other side. He sends the crowds away, and then he goes up onto the mountain by himself in order to spend some time in prayer. Now, all of this is taking place in the evening hours. The evening meal would have been around 6 p.m., so you're looking at 7, 8 p.m., however long it took. So he's up on the mountain praying, but look in 24. But the boat was already a long distance from land. The Gospel of John will tell us it's about three to four miles offshore is where the boat is at. Battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary Strong language there. The disciples are in the boat. They are out on sea. They're in the middle of the the, the Sea of Galilee. And the wind, there's obviously a strong and powerful wind, as is common uh, in the Sea of Galilee. And this wind is so strong that it says it is, the waves are battering them. The word batter is a word for torture. It's a word used of demonic oppression. This is not just there were some waves and it was kind of choppy. They are facing waves that are, that are near impossible to go against, which means the disciples aren't sailing. They're rowing. And so they're facing. They're likely exhausted. It's been a long day of ministry, a long day. They're now rowing. They've been after it. And look what it says in verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. The fourth watch of the night would have been in between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Jesus comes. The Gospel of Mark tells us he actually intends to pass by the disciples to go to the other side to be standing there when they get there, which that would have been a wild, uh, a wild scene to see. The disciples pull up and Jesus is standing there. Well, Jesus, how did you get here? Um, But the disciples spot him. Now understand the disciples, they're having to row against these waves. The sea is battering them. Based on the time frame, they've probably been rowing anywhere from 6 to 12 hours. Closer to 6 probably, but we'll be generous and give the whole time span. They've been rowing for a while. They are exhausted. There's this storm, and all of a sudden they see a figure walking on top of the water, and they are terrified. They're terrified by who it is, and when they cry out, this is not... Someone said loudly, this is, they are screaming, they are panicked. What is going on? Who is this? It's a ghost. They are worn out. They are fearful. Verse 27, but immediately, wasting no time, Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus wastes no time. He doesn't want them afraid. He wants them to know who he is. It's me. It's Jesus. But the words there translated, it is I, isn't simply just the words for, hey, it's me, it's Jesus, but in in the Greek, it's I am. It's more than just a statement of it's me, Jesus. It's a statement of it's me, Jesus, and I am the I am, and I am with you, and I am for you, so do not be afraid. Take courage. Be enheartened. Be firm. Be resolved. It also means to be cheerful. Be relieved and don't be afraid. Stop being the fear that you are because it is me. So Jesus makes this clear, and then Peter looks and says to him, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, come. Now, I don't know if Peter, I don't know what was running through his mind. The text doesn't say. But he said, hey, have me come out there, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, come. And come there is not a declarative statement. It's a command. So now Peter has one of two options. He'd either say, ooh, Jesus, I don't know about that. I don't think so. And he can be disobedient and show no faith and stay in the boat. 
Or he can be obedient and display faith and get out of the boat and remind you there is a massive wind and this boat is rocking up and down and the waves are hitting it. He's not stepping out onto a calm sea. He's stepping out into a storm. And so Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Peter gets out. He begins walking towards Christ. He's obviously made some considerable progress. And then all of a sudden, he starts to feel the spray of the waves hit his face. Maybe a wave even crashes on him, and he starts to look around. And and the magnitude of the impossibility of the situation he finds himself in hits him. Here's what I mean. All of a sudden, he realizes, I'm walking on water. I can't do that. We can send a man to the moon. We cannot walk on water. I can't do this, and here I am, and look at these waves, and what's going to happen? And his mind moves off. The word for doubt there, when Jesus says, why did you doubt? It literally means to be uh, be trying to go in two different directions, to be bowing down to two different masters. So all of a sudden, where his mind was once focused on Christ, Christ called me to come out there. Christ says, come. So at the word of Christ, he gets out in faith. Now he's going two different directions. And he begins to sink, and... Obviously, in his sinking, he doesn't lose all faith because he knows, and specifically, see what he says. He says, Lord, save me. He still at least believes strong enough that Jesus has power and Jesus can pull him out. And so Jesus, upon that cry, immediately reaches down and pulls him out. They walk back to the boat. They get in. And the response of the disciples here is one of absolute worship. Who is this man? They say, you are certainly, they are emphatic, you are God's son which is the first time they make that cry. The first time they're beginning to put the pieces together and realize Jesus is something more than just maybe the political Messiah that we think he is. And they worship. They bow down, they prostrate themselves in complete and total dependence and adoration to one who is greater than they. It's a common story if you've grown up uh, going to vacation Bible school, children's Sunday school, you've heard it. Sometimes we can lose sight of maybe what it is, but when you walk through the text, here's what you see clearly. Jesus is deeply concerned that his disciples have a correct understanding of who he is so that when they follow him in faith, their faith will not sink when they follow him to places unknown and storms out of their control. You see this from the beginning. Jesus sends them away because if their faith is centered on Jesus, but their understanding of Jesus is faulty, then their faith is not in the actual Christ. But their faith is on a lie or a misunderstanding, and so he sends them away, and Jesus knows. He's already told them in Matthew 10, the cost and the call of discipleship, the cost will be great. The cost is going to pitch you against your own family. It's going to pitch you, it's going to put you against your own countrymen. It's going to take you, you backwater fishermen from a tiny village in the middle of nowhere, and it's going to put you in front of kings and governors. And you who've had no education, you're going to have to stand before the most educated elites in in, in the world or in the country of our time and give account on my name. 
Well, they can't do this if their faith is in an incorrect understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus wants it to be clear to them. It's why he sends them away immediately. It's why when they're afraid immediately, he doesn't rebuke them, but he says, it's me. I am. I am God. I am with you. Take courage. Do not be afraid. When, when Peter cries out for deliverance, immediately Jesus picks him up and pulls him out. He doesn't toy with them. He doesn't sit there and go, mm, Peter, I'm going to let you soak in a little bit more water so you really get it. He wants them to be clear on who he is because Jesus knows the only way that you or I, any of the 12 disciples can follow him is in faith. The only way you and I can follow Christ is in faith. It's the only way. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Colossians chapter 2 says this. Colossians 2 verse 6. Therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, How did you and I receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Through faith. Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace. It's the grace of God that saves us, but how do we receive it? Through faith. Back in Colossians, it says, verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. 2 Corinthians 4 says that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For we walk not by sight, but by Faith. It is impossible to know Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, and to live a life pleasing to Jesus Christ apart from faith. I cannot come to Christ. I, I don't know him. I'm without Christ. I am not one of, uh, one of uh, God's children. I am lost in my sin. Well, I cannot come to know Christ by my own effort. My effort will not take me to Christ. The only way I can come to know Christ is by faith. If I am a child of God, I've been saved by grace through faith, it doesn't all of a sudden turn from, well, I'm saved by grace through faith, but now I've got to bulk up and do it all on my own. False. The only way to follow Christ is by faith. The only way to live a life where at the end I stand before him and he looks at me and says, well done, good and faithful servant, is to live a life where I walk by faith. It's what you see in the text clearly with Peter. Peter cannot follow Jesus onto the waves if his faith is lacking or weak. So what is faith? We've got to clarify what faith is because we've got some misconceptions in society today. We see, when we say faith, typically what we mean is wishful thinking. Or we mean blind faith, where I'm just taking a step in the dark and, and hoping that it turns out well. Or maybe it's an optimistic positivity. Well, I'm just going to hope for the best and it'll all work out. You see this personified. This is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you're familiar with the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, I'll just tell you in brief. He comes to a, a canyon and he's got to cross it. And the clue to cross the canyon is to take a leap of faith. And so he comes to the edge of the canyon. He closes his eyes and Harrison Ford grimaces and he sticks his leg out and he falls forward. That is not biblical faith. Because he stuck his leg out hoping there'd be a bridge there or something there to catch him, but he didn't actually know there would be. Biblical faith is this. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things unseen. Biblical faith has to do not with wishful thinking, but with fact, with reality. See, a better picture of biblical faith is what every one of you are doing right now. You're not even thinking about it. 
but you're all exercising faith in the chair you're sitting in. You have rested the fullness of the weight of your body on that chair. If you're truly sitting in that chair, your muscles are not doing anything to keep you up off the ground and to resist the laws of gravity. That chair is doing all of the work for you because without even thinking about it, you have trusted that that chair is able to hold you off the ground and so you're not even thinking about whether or not that chair is stable. That's biblical faith. Biblical faith is when I rest upon the facts of who Jesus is and what he says. God delights to increase our faith. What I mean by increase our faith is not that God delights to make us muster up. If if faith is resting upon Christ, faith is not something I muster up. Jesus' cry at Peter here is not, he doesn't get on to Peter because Peter somehow hasn't mustered up enough faith. Let me just believe stronger. No, the problem is Peter has not rested in who he knows Jesus to be and who Jesus has said he is. But instead of resting in Jesus, instead of knowing, here I am, I am walking to the God of the universe, whom I've already watched say the words and calm the wind and the waves. I know the wind and the waves obey him because he is their creator, and he is said to come, so I'm going to come to him. He has not rested in that. Instead, he has started to look and see the danger and the powerlessness of his situation. He's not resting. Faith is not something we muster up. The question of faith is not, do I believe strong enough, but do I truly trust? It's not how much you do or don't believe whether that chair can hold you up. The fact of the matter is, either that chair is stable and can hold you up, or it can't. And your faith in that chair is exercised by the fact, are you sitting fully in that chair, or are you kind of holding yourself half off? Because you're worried that maybe I, for a sermon example, came in and unscrewed some of the screws and would make one collapse all of a sudden. Uh... This is biblical faith. And we need to understand about God. He delights to bring us to places where we come into greater faith, where we rest in him more. This is why James says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that endurance have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God delights to put us in situations. Notice what he does with the disciples here. He takes the disciples from a very physically safe situation, puts them on a boat out onto the sea at night where he knows a storm is coming. He puts them in a place where they are powerless, where they are going to be exhausted, where there is a sense of danger. But yet the true danger was if they had stayed here, they would have picked up an idea about Jesus that is false. God puts us in situations to grow our faith, to bring us to a greater level of dependence and trust, to be absolutely certain in who he is. There is no other way to follow Christ than by faith, but there's two questions we've got to ask in that reality. There's no other way Peter can walk on the water but by faith in Christ who gives him the ability, but there's two questions, two areas where we will struggle, and and if we don't understand them, we won't walk in faith well. First is this, it's a question for all of us. We have to be unwaveringly certain in who Jesus truly is. The first area where we struggle in faith is the fact that many times we're not really certain who Jesus is. And sometimes we're certain who Jesus is, but who we're certain Jesus is is not who he actually is. 
This Jewish crowd, they believed him to be the God of health, wealth, and prosperity. Yet clearly, Jesus is not a king of this world who's about health, wealth, and prosperity. He's the savior from eternity. He is from eternity. He works for eternity, to eternity. He is the almighty. He is the one who stepped down out of heaven, and his kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to set the Jews free from Roman oppression. He came to break the bonds of sins for every man and woman who places faith in him and to deliver us to our eternal and true home. And if we do not understand and have a right understanding of who he is, then our faith will sink because our faith is not in the true Jesus. So who's the text shown to be? Just real quick, look. One tells us immediately he forced the disciples. He's not the Messiah of our opinion. It does not matter what your opinion of Jesus is any more than it matters what my opinion of Jesus is. What matters is our opinion of Jesus in line with who he actually is. And a lot of times we are prone to view Jesus and to look at Jesus based on how we see brokenness in human relationships. Well, Jesus says he's with me always, but when I feel that he is different, that he is distant, that he's, I don't have that same feeling of him with me, that must mean that he's not with me because that's what it's like when I've got friends who I feel distant from. False. If Jesus said, I am with you always, you know what that means? My impression doesn't matter. My impression doesn't determine whether he's with me or not with me. He is Christ. He is the one who can only speak truth. If he has said it, if the I am has said it, then it is. Period. End of discussion. So he's not the God of our opinion. He's the God who is. But not just that. Look at the, the second thing. Immediately, verse 27, back in the text, he says, I am. He's not the God of my opinion, but he is the true God. And not just that, but, but what he's saying to the disciples is, I am. I am the Almighty. I am the Creator. I am the Sustainer. I am the one in charge. And I have come to you, and I am with you and for you. I am with you and I am for you, knowing me rightly. I am for you, following me. Jesus is the true God. He is the one who has all the power of God, who has the heart of God. He is the I am. Well, what else do you see in the text? You see that Jesus is concerned about saving people. His heart is to save. His heart is to deliver. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And I mentioned earlier, Jesus doesn't toy with him. Well, we're going to let you bob a little bit longer so you really, really, really understand that you got to trust me. The moment Peter turns and makes a confession of faith, Jesus saved me. Immediately, wasting no moment, Jesus pulls him out. If you do not know Christ in this place today, the Holy Spirit convicts and stirs your heart. When you come to Christ and you rest in faith, you in faith ask him to save you, yielding your life to him, guess what? Immediately, he saves you. When you and I as a child of God and we, we find ourselves in circumstances and all of a sudden maybe our faith has faltered, but we cry out for deliverance, truly trusting him, based on who he is, immediately he sticks out his hand and pulls us up. Now here's something you've got to catch though. He pulls Peter up, but that does not stop the storm. Nor does it, when he pulls Peter up, Peter still has to walk on the water with him back to the boat. You and I may face trials where we're going to cry out, having, you know, knowing that Jesus' heart is to save, his heart is to deliver. But when he pulls and brings deliverance in our life, it may not mean that the storm is over and that we don't have to then get back to walking in faith with him in the midst of that storm. 
That's his prerogative and what he's up to. What else do we see? We see he's the one who prays. Romans 8, 4, uh, 34 says, we don't know what he's praying about in this text, but Romans 8, 34 says that right now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I. What is he interceding? He is praying God's will for us. He is praying that our faith will not falter. He is praying that we will walk well with the Father. He is praying for us. What else do we see? We see that he is sovereign. Mark's account of this event in, in the Gospel of Mark, he says that Jesus up on the mountain praying, he sees the disciples straining. Jesus is never unaware of what's taking place with the disciples. He's not distant. He, he sees it. He sees their struggle. He knows what they're going through. And likewise, with you and I, he is sovereign. He is never distant. He knows what we are facing, and he is the one who has the power and the authority to either cause what we are facing to happen or to allow what we are facing to happen. There is nothing that can touch your life or my life that has not at minimum passed through his hands. Now, it doesn't mean every bad thing that happens he causes. God does not will evil. But just like Job, Satan had to have God's permission to touch Job's life. Nothing touches our life that God is not sovereignly over, which means that Jesus has all authority over all crisis. And you see Jesus step into the boat, it's amazing. Jesus doesn't even tell the winds or the rains to stop. The mere fact of once he puts his feet in the boat, they stop. Because all things are subjective, subjected to him. We see that he is sovereign. We have to have a correct understanding of who he is or our faith will falter. Because the second part of it, do we know who he really is? Are we certain of who he truly is? Is this. If we're going to follow him in faith, it's going to demand courageous obedience. Look back at the text. What does he say? What's ultimately what Peter, part of what Peter starts to doubt is he tells them, take courage, do not be afraid. Yet what does it say? Peter, when he saw the wind, the, the wind he became afraid. If you and I are going to walk in faith, it demands courage. It demands that we take courage, that we be firm, that word to be firm, to be resolved. In an interesting way, it means to be cheerful. How is courage cheerful? Because I am relieved because I can be firmly resolved in the knowledge of who Jesus truly is. And that's the, when I make that choice, that's what causes me to reject the fear. It's going to demand taking courage. When Jesus calls you to follow him by faith, I think sometimes we pick up this idea that, we're, okay, well, we're going to step out of the boat probably like Peter. Here's the boat, it's choppy. Jesus said, come, awesome, I get out of the boat. I'm just marching along. And then somewhere along the way, all of a sudden it occurs to us, I can't do this. I am in over my head. I, oh, wow, Lord, what if, and all of a sudden we start to come up with all the reasons and all the fears and all the doubts and our mind starts to go two ways. On one hand, no, no, I wanna follow Jesus. He saved me, I'm gonna follow him. But on the other hand, here is every reason and excuse why I should not Fear comes into the place. It demands courage. It demands that I reject fear because I know and I am firm and I resolve this is who Jesus is and so I will follow him in faith. It's gonna mean that I actively obey his word. This is what James says. Faith is not a mental issue. Faith is an issue of the will. Peter's problem on the sea is not a problem that he has some theological misunderstanding about the power of Christ. The problem is he begins to put his eyes on the fear of the situation and not on Christ. 
See, if you and I walk in faith, James tells us that, that if we say we have faith but there is no work, our faith isn't really faith. If you and I are gonna walk in faith, it means we actually have to obey and do what Christ has said. It means we take his word seriously. So we look into our lives and we say, am I walking what he, where he has said clearly in his word? There's a lot of God's will that's clear in his word. Do I walk in truth? Do I walk in purity? Or do I capitulate and I fudge the truth and I am okay with white lies or, or because culture has started to say that there are aspects of morality that, that scripture upholds that are wrong, I'm, I'm kind of watering those down and maybe I'm not so firm. Do I stand where he stands there? Do I stand where he stands in his specific will for my life? I don't know what God's full plan for your life is. It's ultimately between him and you. But he's calling you to follow him somewhere. And to follow him in faith means you actually have to obey. It means we have to obey in the midst of danger and fear. Situations where we're gonna, where we're gonna uh, not uh, be out of our element. Situations that are terrifying. It may mean you have to make a choice with, with taking a job that other people won't understand. Or maybe it means parents, you have to be okay when God calls your son or daughter to go to a place that is dangerous. Means we're going to have to follow him in the midst of powerlessness and inadequacy. There are situations God calls us into where we're going to feel inadequate. The question is not, the question of faith, if I'm following him, is do I back down from that situation or do I step forward? We're going to have to follow him into, uh, in the midst of exhaustion, hard work, discouragement. We get excited. All right, Lord, we know from last week you've got a ministry for us. We're going to follow you into this ministry. We jump out of the boat walking in faith. And all of a sudden, as we begin to minister to this, these people, we discover this is really hard. And I'm discouraged because things aren't going as I've expected them to go. The question of faith is, well, even in the face of that, I've got to keep walking. I've got to keep walking. I've got to do it when Jesus seems distant. There's going to be times in your life, for whatever reason, Jesus just feels different, distant. You don't have what in youth group culture, you don't have the camp high. It doesn't mean Jesus is distant. It means you've got to walk in faith knowing he is with you always because that is who he is. Ultimately, true faith leads to worship. When the disciples see what happens... They have this encounter with Christ. Their faith is challenged. They get in the boat. They worship him. If I really walk in faith, faith produces true worship. Worship doesn't produce faith. I can come in here all day long and raise my hands and sing ocean. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. But if you don't actually follow him out onto the waves in obedient faith, certain of who he is, that's not worship. Whatever high you get from that's no different than if you went to a Beatles concert and got excited about singing She Loves Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christ always calls us out onto the waves. He never calls us to places where we're, we're able to be self-dependent because then we'd worship ourselves. He calls us to places where our only hope is him and faith in him. And today, make no mistake, to every one of us in this room, Jesus stands on the waves and says, Come. That maybe he says, come to faith in me. 
You who do not know me, come, place your faith in me, be saved from your sin. That may mean some of you brothers and sisters, he's saying, come, here is a ministry I have entrusted for you and you have given in to fears of inadequacy or fears of failure or fears of the hard work or you've been discouraged. Lay it aside, come, I have called you. It may mean that he is laying on your heart a transition in career or maybe a, a, something that needs to change in your family and today he says, come, the question is for every one of us. Do we know who he is? Are we certain of who he is? And do we obey? Because those are the two factors that are going to determine if we walk in faith. And there is no other way to follow Christ than to walk in faith. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Pray with me. Father, you know where every heart in this room is. God, there's not a one of us in this room who you do not stand in a place that is at times frightening to us, at times reveals our total inadequacy, at times where you seem to be distant, at times where it is dangerous and it's going to cost us. There's not a one of us in this room where you don't stand in that place. There's not one of us in this room you don't stand in a place that in order to follow you is going to demand that I actually truly trust you. That I don't rely on my own ability, but Jesus, I sit down into who you are and rest in the fact that you are the I am. You are the one who enables me to follow you. You are sovereign. You are the one who prays the Lord's will over my life. You are always with me. You are always aware. There's not one of us, Lord, that you do not call and bid to follow you today. So my prayer simply as we enter this time of invitation is that hearts in this room would clearly know where you stand. And that wherever you stand and wherever you're calling, that we would all walk out of here getting out of the boat and onto the sea. Eyes on you, single-minded focused. Trusting who you are, walking you in faith. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're gonna be in a time of invitation. However God leads your heart to respond, you may not know the Lord in this place today and you may know, I need to know the Lord. Come, let us talk with you. Let us lead you to Christ. You may say today, I man, God has been calling, he's moving on my heart, I need to be obedient in this way, or I need prayer, or I need, respond. If you need to come down and pray with us, if you need to come down and join the church, come down this morning, but you respond in obedience to Jesus Christ.